Well, something old, something new. Today is my wife's birthday, but that has nothing to do with the title of the message. She was here first hour, and we all told her happy birthday. But uh, No, actually, it has to do with something, that, a phenomenon that we all deal with. I went to a Christian bookstore recently and saw a book by an author, one of my favorite authors, and a new book. So I pick it up and look at it, and as I begin to thumb through it, I said, wait a minute, this looks familiar. And I looked way down in the fine print, and turns out it wasn't a new book, but it was an old book that they had just given a new cover to and a new title to. And um, some reason, if we just change the way the, the outside the book looks, all of a sudden now it's appealing, it's attractive to us. I met a guy this week, outside you could not tell at all that there was a Bible. It had some Latin words all over the top of it, and I recognized the Deo part, and said, well, that's something to do with God, so I opened it up, and, you know, and I'm in 1 Samuel. Said, Wait a minute, this is a Bible. The outside of it looked nothing like a Bible, but the inside clearly was. For some reason, I don't know what it is about human nature, but we can't help it. We are attracted to things that are new. If something looks new, we're attracted to it. Uh, perhaps it's just natural curiosity, but we feel that newer is better. If you've got two items, given all other things being equal, if it's newer, we'll take the newer one. Because there's something about us that feels like, well, if it's newer, then it's better. We need the, the newest operating system on our computer because it's better. We need the newest fashion. We want to go see the latest movie. We've got a book by an author that's claimed to be the newest thing by the author, and so because it's the newest thing, we think, well, it's probably the best one he's ever done, and so we'll get it. Even on cereal, have you ever noticed how many times that we say new and improved? When really all it means, new and improved, means is old, but repackaged. Interestingly, this is not a new concept. The idea of being attracted to what's new and what's different, what's flashy. As far back as the very first century, the Apostle Paul dealt with this when he was standing on Mars Hill, way over there in Greece. And uh, the people that were standing around him, the, the book of Acts says that they did nothing but talk about the latest thing, that they gathered and they were all interested in the newest ideas. And so they came to Paul and said, tell us about what you think, what your new ideas are. And Paul began to share with them about Jesus. And yet that wasn't new at all. All it was is a fulfillment of something that was very old. When it comes to God's Word, our fascination with what's new takes no exception. Various cults today aren't satisfied with what God has revealed in the Scriptures, and so we add to the book of the Lord, and we add other books to it. We say, well, this is now God's newest Word. And even people within the confines of what you might call true biblical Christianity, some are fascinated with the idea that God has a new word for us. That the word that he's revealed to us is not sufficient. You've got to have a new word, taking no thought that it might contradict what's written in the Scripture. You know, I have no problem at all to say that we need to change the way we communicate the old message to make it relevant for today or easy not to make the message relevant, but to communicate in a relevant way the old message. I have no problem with doing it 
in a new way. The problem that we have is when we change the message to where it's no longer the way it was at the beginning. I'd like for you to look with me today at the book of 2 John. 2 John. How many people have ever heard a message from the book of 2 John before? Can you remember? I don't know that I have either. It's not one that we come to very often. Same with 3 John next week and then Jude following that. This is kind of the postcard section of the New Testament. It's the, the letters that are really small. In fact, 2 and 3 John are so small that they could have fit on just one little page of parchment. Small books, and yet they carry a powerful punch. John is going to talk to us today about something old and something new and how that relates to us. Let's begin the very first verse. He says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Not real sure if the chosen lady and her children is an actual lady and her children, or if it's kind of a cloaked uh, reference to a church and its members. But either way, the, the relevance of this text is there. The timeless truth is there for us. And the word that kept popping up over and over as we read through this is the word truth, truth, truth. John kept talking about the truth. And if you were, we were to read all the way through the first six verses, we see he uses uh, truth five times. He uses the word love four times. And these are themes that are going to continue to emerge as we work our way through this text. But what is this truth that he says is with us forever? Now, he doesn't spell it out plainly here. He kind of assumes that they know it. But you can kind of get the hint of what he's talking about. And certainly, as we compare other scripture, other book to this, we know exactly what he's talking about. But you kind of get the hint there in verse 3 where he says, The grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Grace mercy and peace. What is grace? Grace is favor that God gives you that you don't deserve. When God looked at the life of Wayne Stiles, he says, Wayne does not deserve anything but a condemnation because he's a sinner. He's done things that are wrong. He has uh, shamed my name in his life, and he deserves condemnation. But grace is favor that God gave me, favor that he gives you, though we don't deserve it. Mercy is the motivation by which he gives us that grace, that he has compassion on us in our helpless state, that he realizes that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. All the good works we can do doesn't amount to a hill of beans to try to earn God's favor. To have God's favor, it has to be a favor that he, has, he gives us by his grace. And that is through, as is implied here in verse 3, his son Jesus Christ, the son of the Father. When he died on the cross, died for our sins, removed our sins, we take we place our faith in Jesus and our sins are forgiven. And then we have the third part here, peace. Peace from God. Because if there's no, nothing, uh, no sin between us, then we have peace with him. Grace, mercy, and then the result of those, peace, are with us. 
And then he ends that saying, in truth and love. And that is kind of a nice hinge that takes us into, starting in verse 4, the real heart of this book and really the real punch of what he's trying to talk about. Look at verse 4. He says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. And now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Remember when Jesus, once in his ministry, was asked, what's God's greatest hit commandment? What is the top commandment of all the Old Testament? Jesus, without any hesitation, says it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets, meaning all the entire Old Testament, hang on these commands. You love God, you love your neighbor as yourself, you are essentially fulfilling every requirement in the whole Old Testament. Jesus summarized it with those two commands. Love. Love God and love your neighbor. And so we, hear, we have Second John here, this apostle, one of the things that's really struck me as we work our way through these New Testament books, and one of the reasons I love doing a series like Route 66, where we just take a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible, is you kind of have a little smorgasbord of every piece of the New Testament. And one of the things I picked up as we're moving through it this time is what these apostles at the end of their life are emphasizing. These are the guys like we saw a couple weeks ago with Peter, Second Peter. I mean, the guy walked with Jesus Christ. John, the Apostle John, walked with Jesus Christ. The things that they could lay out for us. I mean, talk about something old, something new. They could tell us something new. He says, look, here's mysteries that have always been hidden. I'm going to lay it out and tell you. Satisfy your curiosity. Tell you some wonderful things that you can uh, praise the Lord for. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give us a bunch of new stuff. Instead, he takes us back and says, I'm not giving you a new command. Nothing new here but I want to remind you of what you've already had. Same, like, same thing Peter said a couple weeks ago. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And what's that reminder? Very simply, the command to love. Love one another. You remember the old song? Some of you, it's probably not that old, in the 60s. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together and love one another right now. Right? And everybody in the culture says, yes, that's exactly right. We need to love one another. We've got another song from the 60s. All we need is love. Ba, 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 da, da. All we need is love, love. Love is all we need. That's all we need. And we just love. That's the problem to peace on earth. We need love, right? And everybody says, yes, we just need love. And you ask them, okay, what does that look like? Now all of a sudden we're on different planets. When you say, do we need love, we're in unity. What does love look like? Everybody's got a different idea. So when John tells them to walk in the truth, he defines exactly what that means, and he uses a word in the original language that leaves no doubt in the, in the minds of the readers 
what it means to love one another. It doesn't mean a sexual love. It doesn't mean a love that you just enjoy being around somebody because they make you feel good. It is a love of will. It is a love of choice. It is a love that sacrifices. It's the love that Jesus gives, gave when he laid down his life on the cross. The word love here talks about a love of sacrifice. And so John's essentially saying that you walk in truth when you love someone sacrificially. How do you really know that you love somebody? How do you really know that somebody loves you? You give up something valuable to you because somebody is more valuable than what you're giving up. You sacrifice so that somebody else benefits. You see, God's not just content to say all we need is love. But he says, he gives examples. Husbands, love your wives. Now, we as husbands could gather around in a big circle, kind of a campfire, you know, guitar. All we need is love, love. You bet. Love is all we need. Husbands, love your wives. You bet. Okay, John, no problem as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I hear some guitar strings popping at that point. You see, it's no problem to say we need love, but then when you actually put the rubber to the road and you say, here's what love is, we've got a problem. What does that mean? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, if you read in Ephesians 5 where Paul gives us that teaching, he talks about, and it's the same word here for love. What does that mean? That you give yourself up for her, just like Christ gave himself up for the church. But it's not a sacrifice. See, Christ didn't sacrifice for the church so that the church would like him. But Christ sacrificed for the church, and that, that text goes on to say, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. The purpose of this sacrificial love is not for me to sacrifice something for you so that you're impressed with me. No, that's nothing but pure manipulation. That is selfish love. That's not sacrificial love. The kind of love he's talking about is when you give something up for somebody so that it benefits them, so that they are sanctified, so that they grow. So what it's talking about in Ephesians 5 for the husband. Husbands, you give up your will, you give up your time, you give up your money, you give up that attitude so that your wife grows in Christ-likeness. That's what the text means. That's what Christ did for the church. And so when we see this word here, it's the exact same word. It's the word of sacrifice, that you walk in truth when you love someone sacrificially. Let me ask you a question. What's the last thing that you've sacrificed? so that somebody may benefit. You sacrifice your time for somebody so that they'll actually really benefit, or your money or your will so that they will benefit, or do we sacrifice so that they are impressed with us? Sacrificial love, the kind of love that he's talking about here, is a love that you do it for their benefit. And notice that it says it's a command. That's not a word we use a lot, command. How would you feel if I were to stand up here and say, 
I command you. If I said, Jim McNeely, I command you to do something. How'd you feel, Jim? You'd feel pretty, uh, you'd probably want a new pastor, wouldn't you? <laughs> Nobody likes to be commanded. I command you to do something. That just, ooh, we don't like that. And person to person, yeah, our hackles get raised when we hear that. But when we realize that this is not just an apostle, even though he had far enough authority to say it, but that this is the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle, that this is God speaking through this man, and it has been translated into a language you can read and understand, that God, Almighty God, is commanding you and me to love one another. That is to love in a way that you sacrifice, you give up yourself so that somebody can benefit. Christian love is not a sentimental feeling. It's not a nice cliche. It's not a line in a song. But Christian love is a willingness to lay down your life because Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. Now in verse 7, he goes on to say what sacrificial love doesn't mean. Okay? Let's read that. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. All he means there in verse 8 is, look, don't be duped by these deceivers that come out, because God's got rewards that he wants to give you in heaven. He's not talking about you'll lose your salvation. He says, look, you've got rewards that God wants to give you through living out the practical implications of this doctrine. Don't be deceived into the wrong doctrine where you start living the wrong way and you lose potential rewards that you could have in heaven. John's statement here in verse 7 is powerful because he assumes something. He says, The deceivers have gone out into the world, those who did not acknowledge, and look at this, Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. What does this assume? It assumes that Jesus Christ as coming means he's come from someplace. It's not just that he began there in Bethlehem in Christmas, but that he came to Bethlehem from somewhere else. That his coming in the flesh. This clearly implies that John is saying, and he doesn't even imply it in his gospel, just right out of the chute, he says, the word was God. He says, he says here, Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. And notice what he also says, in short, that a person who does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as God in the flesh is not a believer, but is rather a deceiver. Because he says this is the teaching of the deceiver and the Antichrist. The whole, all wrapped up in the teaching of Satan far from the truth of the revealed Word of God. I was saddened this Christmas to read an article about a Protestant minister overseas in Ireland. Protestant minister. I mean, we are Protestants, okay? Protestant minister who no longer believes, or in fact, he admitted after 30 years in the ministry, he has never believed in the deity of Jesus. Andrew Furlong said this, quote, I don't believe the traditional understanding of Christmas that God took human form and was born as a babe in Bethlehem. 
to my mind, Jesus and John the Baptist also, were mistaken and misguided end-time prophets. Jesus was neither a mediator nor a savior, neither superhuman nor divine. We need to leave him to his place in history and move on. He believes, he says, that a modern church needs to have the freedom to question traditional beliefs. And you know, I think it's fine to question tradition. But there's a difference between questioning tradition or saying that we have the freedom to question tradition and the freedom to question truth. Because there's a world of difference between tradition and truth. Sometimes they intertwine, but sometimes they don't. Where are they rooted? Tradition is rooted in the words of men. Truth is word rooted in the word of God. Look at what John says in verse 9 in light of that. Boy, you just wonder what they do with texts like this when they make those statements. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Pretty strong statement, isn't it? Not very ecumenical today. It does not have God if you don't abide in the teaching of Christ. And what is the teaching of Christ in this context? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. Years ago, I had a good friend who told me he was going to seminary. We both decided to go to seminary, went to different seminaries, and he chose to go to Bright Seminary down in Fort Worth, TCU, Texas Christian University. And I didn't know anything about Bright, and so I wrote them and said, I'd like to know your doctrinal statement and want to know a little bit about it. I've got a friend that's coming there and like to know. They didn't write back, but in a couple of weeks called me and said, we've got your letter. understand you've got some questions about our seminary. I said, yeah, I sure do. I'd like to know your doctrinal statement, what you believe, basically. They said, well, we don't have a doctrinal statement. I said, whoa, okay. Uh, I thought, well, let's just ask. I thought I'd give them an easy one. What do you believe about the Bible? And this, uh, this person says, well, we, we believe that everybody's free to interpret the Bible any way they want to. We don't push our views on anybody. I said, okay. Uh, well, what do you have to believe then to get into the seminary? Well, let's really make it basic. What do you have to do to get into the seminary? And she says, well, just, I mean, I kid you not, kind of hesitation. Well, just believe in God. Notice what this verse says, verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In other words, if you don't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh, you have no connection with God at all. A true relationship with God, John says, stems from a correct belief in Jesus Christ. It may sound simplistic, but Christianity is rooted in Jesus and who Jesus is. And you know, that's really the central question of your life. Who is Jesus Christ? One time in Jesus' ministry, when he was way up north in the Golan Heights with his disciples, he asked them, who do the people say that I am? This was a 
pivotal point in the life of the disciples. And some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. And, and then Jesus narrows it and says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the whole group, says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus' question to his disciples is Jesus' question to you because it's the litmus test that John has here for anybody who has God. Who do you say that Christ is? And the answer to that question determines your whole existence. Because if Jesus Christ is just a prophet, just another man, you know, then he was a liar because he said that he was God. John 10.30, he said he was God. Plus the Bible, John 1.1, 1, 1, John, all of John's writings. He said he was God, so he was, either, he was either a nut or he was who he says he was. And when somebody rises from the dead, that's pretty convincing. <laughs> Did you see the scene in the movie, Return of the Jedi? For those of you who care nothing about Star Wars, you're welcome to just check out here for about three minutes. Okay? <laughs> But the Return of the Jedi, remember that scene? This, I think, is the third movie before we went back to the first one before the first one. But it's the third movie where Luke Skywalker realizes Darth Vader is his father, and yet Ben Kenobi says, well, Vader murdered your father, and so Luke comes to Ben Kenobi and says, you told me Vader murdered my father, and now I find out he is my father. And what Ben does is he goes through this explanation, and he goes through all these you know, explaining, and then all of a sudden he says, so you see what I said was true from a certain point of view. And in that statement, Lucas, the, the whole author of this, summarized well the idea of our culture. It's all the way back to the book of Judges that everybody does right what's in their own mind. That truth is relative, that you've got my truth is not your truth, and you can believe whatever you want about the Bible. It doesn't really matter that the Bible says you can't do that. But you can just believe whatever you want about the Bible. No big deal. The truth is relative. There are no absolutes. It's just whatever you want to believe. You walk down university and you ask 10 different people what is truth and you'll get 12 different answers. In our society today, even in those who say that they are Christians, born-again Christians, those who say that they're born-again Christians, two-thirds don't believe in absolute truth. Two-thirds, statistically, don't believe in absolute truth. That there are absolutes, that means there is something that is not open to your opinion or my opinion, but it is true no matter what. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'll make two statements, both of which are true. Pizza is the best food on the planet. True. True. Another statement. The sky is blue. True. Both of these, I believe with all my heart, they are true. Now let's talk about these for a second. When I say pizza is the best food on the planet, is that a statement that is true about pizza, the object we're talking about, or is it true about me, the subject speaking? It's true about me. That's what's called subjective truth that it's true about the subject speaking, not the object we're talking about. Now, if I say the sky is blue, is that 
true about the subject or about the object? It's about the object, the sky. You see, we've got these, what is truly two different kinds of truth. Subjective truth that's true of the subject speaking, and it changes, you know, with the weather. And objective truth, the sky is blue. Now, you can tell me the sky is green, but you're wrong. The sky is blue. Universally across the world, everybody is going to look up and say, the sky is blue. The problem in our culture is that we confuse subjective truth and objective truth. We'll throw objective truth away and say everything is subjective. To where now on the level of pizza is the level of is it right or wrong to kill children? Subjective. Your truth is not my truth. But in a world that universally rejects rape, child abuse, murder, and pain, you cannot deny absolute truth. Have you ever had a child that always comes to you and says, why? You say something, why? You answer them, why? And it just, oh, that just gets me when they do that. But you got a child that has a firm belief in absolutes. Because the second you stop answering the question why, you land on an absolute. Here's another example. If you say that all truth is relative, then you have to admit that Mother Teresa lived no more moral life than did Hitler. So, oh, no, no. Mother Teresa lived a more moral life. Well, the question is, why? On what basis do you say that? You say, well, because she was you know, good to the poor. Why? You see, you keep always asking why all the way back, and as soon as you quit answering why, you land on an absolute. You see, to say that there is relative truth, that you can just interpret the Word of God any way that you want to, basically says that, or if you say that there's relative truth, you can't live consistently. Because you can't, in a, in a world that universally rejects all these things, murder, rape, say that, there are, that it's relative, that, that there are absolutes. When it comes to the Bible, it's a whole lot easier to be a mystic God told me such and so, than it is to be biblically literate. It's a whole lot easier to say, well, God told me this, than to read what God has clearly revealed. God says, anybody can come to me as you are. You don't have to change a thing about yourself to come to me, God says. But you need to come to me on my terms. And my terms, God says, are through my Son, Jesus Christ. As John says here in verse 9, you don't abide in the teaching of Christ, that is, the Son of God in the flesh, you don't have God. A true relationship with God stems from a correct belief in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the implications of that truth on our lives. Verse 10 to the end. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you, speak to you face to face, that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Comes to your house, doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Wow, John, that's not very ecumenical. That's not very all welcoming. That's not very loving. I mean, you just got through saying, love one another, and now you're saying they come to you, but they don't hold to the truth. Don't even let them in. That doesn't seem very loving. 
Well, he's not saying, and perhaps I went too far, he doesn't mean that you can't have un unbelievers in your house. Okay? It's not that, you know, you call and you need to get something fixed. Let's say you need a plumber to come and, and to fix something. It's not that you stop the plumber at the door and say, okay, do you believe Jesus Christ come in the flesh? If not, you can't come in this house. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about those who are simply ignorant of the truth, but rather those who teach error. Big difference. So he's essentially saying that it's not a contradiction of love to refuse to support error. The sacrificial love that he talks about doesn't mean that you sacrifice truth. That's not love. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to speak the truth to somebody in a loving way. This verse also doesn't mean that when the Mormons come and knock on your door that you can't invite them in and tell them about the real Jesus. What this is saying is that if anybody comes to you and tries to teach error, don't receive them into your house in such a way that you're supporting them. Don't, when it says receive them into your house, I mean, don't let them spend the night. Don't put them up. Don't give them that kind of a hospitality that you would to another Christian brother. Because in doing so, you're participating in their evil deeds. No financial support for that, no moral support, no any kind of credence to what they are teaching. Because that's not love. You know, I went to the health food store this week, get some chips, and they had, uh, in the checkout line, there was several people in line, and the guy just ahead of me was kind of an older man, and he looked really down. And when he got up to the checker, uh, let's say this is the, the checker stand, he just kind of was leaning on it like this. He, and, you know, the guy was ringing up his stuff, and he was just leaning on it like this. And the checker turns to this guy and says, So, are you having a great day? And the, the man looked up at him and says, you know, I'm really not. And the checker was just like, he hadn't heard that one today. And nothing more was said, it just quiet. Checked him out, and this older guy takes off. So I'm next. And uh, this checker looks at me and he says, boy, that guy was really crotchety, wasn't he? And I thought, who does public relations for you guys, you know? <laughs> But I said, no, I said, no, he wasn't. He was just honest. You asked him how he was doing, he told you. And he says, you know, that's the problem. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure, and I said, you mean he was too honest? He said, yeah. <laughs> and in this checker's view is the perfect view of our culture. Don't tell me how you really are. I don't want to know that. Tell me you're doing good so that I feel good about myself. No joke. This is our culture. All we need is love. Okay, great. Let's just all affirm that all we need is something that we're not actually ever going to do. Don't tell me what's right and wrong, the world says, because then I'll have to make a choice. That doesn't matter. Let's just love each other. But that's not love. What good does it do me to, to go through my whole life and feel good about myself and then die and go to hell? Christianity stands or falls with its Christology, with its view of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, died for our sins, and been raised from the dead, we are all condemned. But if he has, 
and he has, then God has demonstrated his love for us by his supreme sacrifice. And then the implications of that for us is we're to have that same kind of love, that same kind of sacrificial love in the lives of one another. Second John. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the Bible that doesn't let us wander and wonder about where we should go and what we should think and what we should do. But we have an objective truth that you've given. And we don't believe it simply because we want to. We believe it because you have shown yourself true in history, that we can verify in history the Lord Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so it gives validation to every single word in this book. And so we bow before you today. We worship you today, humbly submitting to the words of this text that we should love one another. And I pray for one perhaps here today that does not know you, that does not have the grace and mercy and peace spoken of in the early verses, that your spirit would move in their heart to draw them in, that they might place their faith in Jesus and have their sins forgiven and then might begin to walk in the truth or to walk in love and help us all Lord to do that to live in such a sacrificial way that we are loving yet at the same time not condoning false doctrine we pray in Jesus name Amen Lord bless you